0: Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. I'd like to read verses 5 through 25 to you in this account. We'll then flip over to Matthew chapter 27 and read verses 15 through 23. Luke 23, verses 5 through 25. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges that you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they cried out altogether, saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas, He was one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify Him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that the demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Matthew 27, let's read verses 15 through 23. Matthew 27, verses 15 through 23. Now at the feast. The governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify Him. And he said, Why? What evil has He done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a weighty text this morning for us to contemplate, consider together. I pray that You would bring appropriate conviction on our hearts as well as we consider these events. In one sense, Seemingly the most awful events, and in another sense, the most awesome events. What I pray that you would help us to consider them rightly and to respond appropriately. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're in the midst of the legal proceedings inquiring into accusations made against Jesus. In the case before Pilate, the Jews are crying out for Jesus' death. They're begging that Jesus be crucified. And the more that Pilate resists, the more and more the crowds cry out. Had Jesus committed crimes of high treason? Is Jesus guilty? Does Jesus deserve death? And if he doesn't, who does deserve death? Well, let's find out this morning in a sermon entitled The One Worthy of Death. And just to keep you on the same page with me, I'm going to give three narrative descriptors as we walk through the story. I want to focus on the story itself, but just to make sure that we're at about the same place, I'm going to mainly be walking through Luke 23 with you this morning. There were Three parts to this legal trial, and I might have to put legal in quotation marks here, legal trial that Jesus received, because as we'll see together, it's not very legal what happens to Jesus. So first of all, let's consider part one of this legal trial, and we see Jesus before Pilate for the first time. Now, we looked at this a little bit last time together. A more extensive account of it is given to us in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 38, where we get kind of an in-depth discussion between Pilate and Jesus is back and forth. But remember, let's just kind of get back up to speed. The Jews had delivered Jesus over to Pilate, hoping that Pilate would just rubber stamp the verdict that the Jewish Sanhedrin had come up with. Remember, they went into that trial, the Jews did, saying, he's already guilty, we want him put to death. And they were trying to figure out something that they could pin to him. Pilate asks for a reason. He asks for a formal accusation to be charged against Jesus and the religious leaders respond by saying we wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't some evildoer." Pilate again avoiding this specific question just saying hey we wouldn't have brought him at all to you if that wasn't the case they want to streamline this process they want Jesus put to death they don't want Pilate to engage in some thorough investigation. Because as it comes to evidence, there is none. There's no substantial testimony. Nothing can actually be pinned against Jesus. But when pressed for an accusation, the Jewish leadership charges Jesus with misleading our nation. Look at it in verse 2 there, chapter 23, Luke Luke 23, verse 2. They accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the King. Now, we know that middle one in particular is just a, flat-out lie. He was asked about taxes. Remember, Jesus said, whose inscription's on the coin, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. He didn't tell people to not pay their taxes. That's a flat-out lie. And the rest of what they're trying to do is to build up this idea that Jesus was involved in some sort of traitorous activity. But again, they have no evidence to back that up, but this is the sort of charge that Pilate can't just brush off. He can't afford to brush off this sort of accusation, that somebody's trying to raise up against the Roman government in some way, shape, or form. Now, last week, we studied that further dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, as John alone records it for us. Pilate marvels that in the face of so much accusation, just a barrage of accusations, Jesus is stands so quietly. When questioned privately, Jesus tells Pilate that he is the king of a spiritual kingdom of truth. Pilate didn't see this as a Direct threat on Roman rule. And as Jesus mentioned, if I was after an earthly kingdom, where are all of my soldiers? Where are all of my followers who are pushing for my freedom or trying to advance me to the throne? They're nowhere to be found. He's appealing to Pilate, just saying, is it even reasonable the sort of accusation that's being made against me? As Jesus had mentioned, his kingdom was not earthly, but heavenly. Added to this... Pilate doubted the Jewish leadership's sincerity. He knew that these individuals were not typically like the watchdogs of Rome. You know, they were going over around trying to advance Roman protocols and Roman priorities. The Jews wanted the Romans out. They felt oppressed by Rome. They wanted to be their own nation, ruled by their own king. They didn't like that Caesar was ruling them. So I'm sure that Pilate's in there like, why are these guys so? adamant about killing Jesus as an insurrectionist, as a traitor. They would love he knows in his heart that they would love nothing more than to kick even Pilate out of there. Kick out the foreign influence. Pilate even believed that their hatred of Jesus was due to some sort of jealousy or envy. Pilate doesn't wish to be played by the Jewish leadership. He's not that gullible, and he's not an easy pushover, especially in a case where the accused doesn't seem to fit the accusations that are being made against him, and there's no substantial proof that's forthcoming. Here's Pilate saying, I don't see anything of this in him. So Pilate emerges from interrogating Jesus. He, remember the end of that conversation, Pilate says, what is truth to Jesus? And he walks out away from him, as if to say, you know, philosophically, how can we ever really nail down what truth is? Or, it's politically impractical to push after truth. Therefore, it's not worth the effort or time. And as you're going to see in the account, Pilate himself is not chiefly concerned with discovering truth. And he won't courageously stand up for truth and for what is right. He's ultimately concerned with his own power, his own prestige, his own popularity, his own influence. And he's willing to compromise on truth in order to accomplish what are his real goals. And this comes out even in his discussion with Jesus, and you're going to see this play out in the rest of the narrative. But something about Jesus causes Pilate to hesitate about putting him to death. He didn't particularly love the Jewish people anyway, so he wasn't going to do them any favors necessarily. So he tells them, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's verdict is not Guilty. Not guilty. But the people won't take not guilty for an answer. They keep insisting that Pilate reconsider. And in hopes of achieving their goal, they begin mentioning the far-reaching nature of Jesus' ministry. You see how this kind of goes. Like, Pilate, you're not taking this seriously enough. This Jesus has been doing this stuff all the way from Galilee. All the way from Galilee down to here. From the north to the south of the kingdom, he's been going around doing ministry. They're trying to say to Pilate, you can't treat him lightly. He has a lot of influence. But all that Pilate hears in this is the word Galilee. And with the word Galilee, he smells out opportunity. Pilate would love to punt this decision some other direction. He doesn't want to deal with it himself. He sees Jesus is innocent, but he knows that the Jews are adamant about putting him to death. But all he hears is Galilee, and he thinks, that's Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod's a Jew. Let's send him to Herod. And, oh, by the way, it's Passover. Herod's in town. He's here in Jerusalem. I'll send him over to Herod. Let's let Herod figure this thing out now Herod and Pilate weren't on the best of terms with one another in fact Luke tells us that Herod and Pilate had been enemies with one another up to this point look it down in verse 12 Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that day for before they had been enemies with each other so they've been enemies with each other up to that point so Pilate's motivations here might be diverse it might just not be one thing that he's after Uh, By giving Herod a say in the matter, Pilate's bestowing a whole bunch of honor on Herod. He's saying, I want you to rule in this case. He's giving a high-profile case to Herod, which is in some way, shape, or form, who is underneath Pilate. Herod's underneath Pilate. It gives some sort of honor and prestige to Herod that Pilate would seek Herod's ruling on the matter of Jesus. In fact, Luke says as a result of these events that Herod and Pilate patch things up with one another, they become friends to, the very, to that very day. But it seems also that Pilate, as I said earlier, wants to punt this case away, punt the decision away. He doesn't want to bear responsibility alone for this decision. So, at first, because you even remember, at first, when he first came to the case, he tells the Jewish leadership, judge him according to your laws. Take care of him that way. But when they respond... Well, we found him worthy of death. He deserves to die, and we can't do that. Rome won't allow us to enact capital punishment, so we're coming to you, Pilate. Remember, Pilate, even there, is trying to push the case away from himself. Now what he's going to do is he's just going to forward the case over to Herod and let him make the judgment. It's a present convenience, too, because, as I said, Herod is already in town, and perhaps Pilate is now sighing a sigh of relief. You know, Pass him off to Herod. I know this feeling sometimes and some of the decisions that I have to make. Sometimes it's, it's like, man, I wish I didn't have to make a decision. <laughs> I'd rather just punt it to somebody else. Let somebody else make the decision. That one. And so I've got to identify with this feeling, at least, in leadership. Those of you who are in leadership, I sure identify with that feeling. And those of you who aren't in leadership want to be in leadership until you have that moment. <laughs> and then you go, I wish I wasn't in leadership. Right? So here's Pilate wanting to push that decision off to Aaron. But don't hold your breath, Pilate. This brings us to the second part of Jesus' legal trial, legal trial part two before Herod's judgment. We see this in verses 8 through 12. So Jesus is escorted to Herod. Now before we talk about the interaction between Jesus and Herod, let's take just a moment to remember what we know about this Herod. And just to make sure that you're not confused, especially with this time coming up to Christmas, this is not the same Herod, Herod king of the Jews, who is after Jesus as a baby. Okay, when remember the Magi from the east come, they come right to King Herod and they ask King Herod about the one born king of the Jews, which Herod, that Herod had taken as a title to himself. I'm King Herod. How dare you speak of one born king of the Jews and not even within my own family? And so this is where that dialogue happens. Remember, Herod is after Jesus wants to put him to death. And remember, as God providentially orchestrates things, Mary and Joseph, after giving birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, travel out to Egypt, and then travel back. All of that being fulfillment of prophecy as well. Well, this is many years later. This is not the same Herod. This is Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was not over all of Judea. He had a portion of the rule, and he was ruling underneath Pilate, a Roman. Okay, So this is not the same Herod, a different Herod. But we do learn about this Herod, this Tetrarch of Galilee. There are several things spoken of about him in the Bible. Just to remind you, This is the Herod who married his brother's wife, an incestuous relationship. And as a result, John the Baptist spoke out against this. And when John the Baptist speaks out against this, Herod arrests John and puts him in prison. And we had this read this morning, right? The reason why he doesn't put him to death is because he's scared of John. (laughs) He's scared of the fact that John is an upright, righteous man and that the general populace likes John the Baptist. We, we know this even plays out in Jesus' ministry, right? Because Jesus asked a question to the religious leaders, was John from God or not? He even asked that question because, remember, the religious leaders want to punt on that question because, hey, that, that's going to be a problem for us if we say that he's from God, then who's going to ask us, well, why don't we follow what he said? And if we say he's not from God, then the general populace are going to be angry with us because they believe John's ministry was from God. So here we have Herod who's got John in custody. He doesn't want him spreading his, his truth with everybody around. He wants to keep that on the lowdown. But meanwhile, he won't put him to death. This guy is cowardly. He won't kill him because he fears the general populace, but he won't set him free because he doesn't want John speaking to others. We're also told that Herod actually enjoyed listening to John. This is one of these weird dichotomies, right? He liked listening to John, even though John's message to Herod personally was, You're engaged in great sin. He likes listening to John, but he doesn't like what John has to say. But Herodias, Herod's wife, she's fuming. She does not want this guy alive. She's waiting for an opportunity to force her husband's hand. And just such an occasion occurred on one day when Herodias' daughter dances for Herod. And he's so pleased that he tells her, I'll give you anything, anything at all to half my kingdom. What do you want? She consults with her mother. Her mother says, ask him for John the Baptist's head on a platter. She goes and asks Herod for this. Herod has vowed and swore that he'd give her whatever. He's in front of, again, people. He has to save face, even though he'd rather not put John to death. He follows through and fulfills his word, and he has John killed. Later, Herod hears about Jesus' ministry. And being a superstitious man, he comments that Jesus must be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And that's why he can perform the miracles that he's performing. You can see that in Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. So Herod kept trying to see Jesus, we're told in Luke 9, 9. So Herod has an interest in Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. In Luke 13, 31 and 32, Jesus is told by some Pharisees to get out of Galilee during his Galilean ministry. He's told, get out of Galilee because Herod wants to kill you. These Pharisees tell him, go away, leave here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replies, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. So Jesus is not scared of Herod. Um, But we see all this kind of leading up to this moment. So this meeting had been a long time coming. Herod had an interest in seeing Jesus. And as we're told here in the text, specifically, he wanted to see some miraculous sign. He's even described here as being greatly glad, hugely happy to have this opportunity. But Herod's about to be sadly disappointed if he thinks that he's going to be entertained by a miraculous show and tell. It's interesting that the text even tells us that Herod wanted to see signs given by Jesus the word signs is an interesting one because it usually... The word functions to speak to not only the miraculous event, but what the miraculous event meant or pointed towards. See, there's places in the Bible where Jesus' miracles are described as works of power. Dunamis which is a powerful act, an expression of his deity, expression of his power. But then, especially in John's Gospel, there's a lot of this kind of phrase where it's like all about signs of his miracles. What did his signs actually communicate? So what's fascinating to me is that Herod wants to see a sign from Jesus, but really all he wants to see is a magic show. He, he doesn't care about what it means. Matter of fact, he rejects what it means. He, he is disinterested in the meaning of Jesus' miracles. He just wants a front row seat to a magic show. Only Jesus' work is not some sleight of hand or a work of illusion. It is the very power of God when Jesus performs a miracle. So, Herod proceeds to question Jesus, we're told, at length, uh, literally, with many words. Herod has many words for Jesus, and Jesus has no words for Herod. Herod has many words for Jesus, but Jesus does not respond with anything. Now, we see this repeatedly in the text where Jesus is being silent while being accused and all the rest. But even as we saw with Pilate, there is at least some dialogue that happens between him and Pilate. Herod, Jesus gives not a single word. Nothing comes out of his mouth to Herod. He wouldn't answer him. It was prophesied that the suffering servant would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he would not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before it shears. He would not open his mouth. That's on Isaiah 53. Is see a fulfillment of that prophecy here. But Jesus has nothing to say to this unbelieving man who... For all of his desiring to see Jesus, never really wanted to know Jesus. <laughs> he wants to see Jesus and see Jesus do something incredible, but he doesn't want to know Jesus, nor does he want to believe Jesus, nor does he want to follow Jesus. We know this not only from Herod's previous dealings with John the Baptist, but we also know it in the future. because We pick up the story of Herod in Acts 12, where he's persecuting Christians. He's persecuting people who follow Christ. He even is the one who puts James to death, and then he imprisons Peter. It's the same individual. Now, Jesus' silence becomes the opportunity for Jesus' enemies to fill the air with vigorous accusations once again. No proof, no evidence, just there's a moment of silence, so let's just shout some more. Let's just try to get this thing pressed through. Maybe they believe the squeaky wheel will get the grease. But Herod is intent on getting some sort of entertainment out of this deal, right? He wanted to see a show. Jesus isn't giving it to him. He's not saying anything to him. So maybe out of a desire to get some entertainment or maybe out of a desire to try to influence Jesus to maybe say something to him, maybe he's going to try to provoke Jesus to do something, he begins mocking Jesus. And ironically, he here demotes himself. We're told here, he takes his place among his guards, among his bodyguards, his soldiers that are standing there, in a sense, demoting himself, and he begins mistreating Jesus. They even mockingly place splendid clothing upon Jesus. What's, though, intended as a cruel joke was, in fact, the reality which they all deny Jesus was and is and always will be king. Herod is probably too superstitiously scared to condemn Jesus to death. Remember, this is the same guy who's scared that Jesus is like, you know, John the Baptist come back to life, right? So he's already scared about that whole deal with John the Baptist. And so I'm sure he's already scared about that whole situation. So he's scared to do anything with Jesus, but he's probably also too angry to acquit him of wrong. So what does he do? Send him on back to Pilate. Send him on back to Pilate. One other thing I want to say before we move back to Pilate we're told here again in verse 12 that Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. They unite together in common dealing regarding Jesus. If I could turn a phrase, Jesus brings them together. <laughs> Jesus brings them together. Now in this case, in resistance against Jesus. That still exists today, doesn't it? They're people of different philosophies, different nationalities, different genders. And they will commonly unite against a common enemy. It is often that we find the case that Christians can receive persecution from many different angles. For that matter, liberals and conservatives alike can dislike authentic Christians. It was pointed out to me by a couple of you. I am sometimes so cut off from the outside worlds, it's good to have you guys remind me of these things. But in looking up these and on YouTube and seeing them afterward, isn't it interesting that you see both CNN cutting off Benjamin Watson and you can see Fox News cutting off Bodie Bauckham for sharing the gospel? CNN and Fox both cutting off people when they're sharing the gospel. And it's so obvious they were just cutting it off. It was like direct and immediate cutoff of the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal or whatever your political philosophy is. If you don't have Jesus, there is a commonality between those who don't know Jesus and their hatred for the gospel. Even this unholy alliance, though, was the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke points this out later on in his second work, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, which we also had read this morning, picking up in verse 23, again, this is after they had been released, after having been persecuted, and they're praying for emboldening power and courage, and and we see that the Holy Spirit does come upon them, and they speak with boldness and fervency. But right in the middle of all of this, what's interesting is there's a quotation here of Psalm 2. And after having quoted Psalm 2, We read this in verse 27 of Acts 4. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. One of the big questions that always is posed is, who killed Jesus? (laughs) Who's responsible for killing Jesus? And to answer that, I'm just going to quote, two fantastic biblical scholars. first one is by Ryken. Ryken said this, Jesus was put to death by real human beings, an unholy alliance of Jews and Gentiles. Ultimately, this was Satan's idea, because he was the one who entered into Judas before the betrayal, but nevertheless, it was all part of God's preordained plan. Wilcox says it this way, The most diabolical of all the schemes of Satan was not only countered at every point by a superior plan of God's devising, it was actually woven into that plan and made to serve God's ends. Ultimately, Jesus goes to the cross because Isaiah 53.10 says it, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. So a Gentile and a Jew become friends because of their mutual mistreatment of Jesus. Two, diametrically opposed individuals forge a friendship because of Jesus. But alliances founded in common hatred are short-lived. As long as a common enemy exists, there's cooperation, and the friendship is ultimately very, very tenuous. The underhanded deal between a Jewish tetrarch and a Roman governor is nothing, though, compared to the friendship that Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus did indeed come to reconcile Jews and Gentiles together. He came to reconcile, first of all, sinful man to God. And through that reconciliation, He makes all those who trust in Him brothers and sisters. His death and resurrection would forever abolish the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, ushering those who repent and believe in Jesus into adoption as sons. The friendship that they encountered on that day was tenuous and for but a moment and a common hatred of Jesus. The friendship that Jesus accomplishes for all those who trust in him is an everlasting friendship. A forever friendship. First of all, with our Father God, but second of all, with everyone who trusts in Jesus' name. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And this is where we pick up on the third phase of this, quote, quote, legal trial. We see this in verses 13 through 25. Now, when Jesus arrives back to Pilate, Pilate gathers not only the chief priests and scribes, but he also asks for the general populace to be present as well. He wants to make now a more public proclamation of his judgment concerning Jesus. He says to them, You brought to me this man as one misleading the people, and behold, I examined him before you. I have found nothing in this man guilty of the charges against him. Then Pilate also mentioned Herod, who had just sent Jesus back to him. Behold, if Herod had an issue with Jesus, remember we were told in those other accounts that the Pharisees had told Jesus, Herod wants you dead. If Herod had murderous desires for Jesus, he had the perfect opportunity to make it happen. But instead, he sends him back. He sends him back in a mocking way. But he sends him back. As if he's like, this claim to him being a king is ridiculous. So ridiculous that I'll even put a kingly robe on him and make fun of him. Pilate interprets this and says, Herod didn't see anything against him either. He's obviously not concerned for his own rulership. He's not concerned for Roman rulership. I'm not concerned for Roman rulership. You see all of the governing leaders saying Jesus is innocent. Combine that with what we talked about earlier about Judas, who betrayed Jesus and after the fact threw his silver back into the temple and said, i betrayed innocent blood. Even Judas says that Jesus is innocent. There's consistent testimony. Judas, Pilate, Herod, all of them declare that Jesus is innocent. Neither the Gentile Pilate nor the Jewish Tetrarch saw Jesus as a threat to their rule. And neither Pilate nor Herod saw anything worthy of capital punishment in Jesus. In one sense, that's good and right. Jesus was not attempting to put together an earthly kingdom, and he had, in fact, done nothing wrong. But in another sense, the fact of Jesus' overarching kingship, it's a tragedy that these men do not pay Jesus the honor and respect that he deserves, instead even reducing themselves to mocking Jesus and contributing to the travesty of justice that's unfolding. And they bear the responsibility for their horrible leadership through that situation. But don't forget, all of this is happening according to God's sovereign plan. Again, Ryle says it this way. We ought to be daily thankful that our great substitute was in all respects perfect and that our surety was a complete and faultless surety. What child of man can count the number of his own sins? We leave undone things we should do and we do things we ought not to do every day that we live. But this must be our comfort, that Christ the righteous has undertaken to stand in our place, to pay the debt we all owe, and to fulfill the law we have all broken. He did fulfill that law completely. He satisfied all of its demands. He accomplished all its requirements. He is the righteousness of all sinners who believe in Him. But that's what makes Pilate's next word so surprising. Pilate says, Therefore, having chastised him I'll release him hold on a second wait 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 you just said Jesus was innocent right he was innocent of the charges against him at least two times up to this point he's already said it he's going to say it a third time again he's innocent it's been confirmed by Herod as well so why was he going to chastise or whip or beat him then can you imagine this for just a moment Let's say that you're the one being accused of crimes that you didn't commit. Can you imagine being exonerated of a crime, but still having to serve time in prison? Can you imagine being found not guilty? I mean, what a moment that would be, right? Can you imagine in a court of law, not guilty, and then you can see the defense at that moment, (gasps) hugging one another, and then right after that, the judge says, and now you're still going to serve time in prison. Before we let you go, we're going to beat you up a bunch, just to teach you a lesson. Yes, it may be true that you've been declared innocent, but you're still going to have to pay the fine. You're still going to be punished. I guess in some sense we really can't, in the fullest sense, understand this. For none of us are utterly innocent of wrongdoing. Yes, it may be true that in a particular case we might be innocent of one particular wrongful deed at a particular time, but none of us are squeaky clean. All of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, here stood the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Not only had He not done the things that they are accusing Him of, He had not done anything wrong. At all. Period. He was utterly innocent. Perfectly righteous. You see... While we can attempt to try to get at this, we can't ultimately get at that. Because even if I'm guilty of one thing, I'm guilty of a whole lot of other things. Even if I wasn't guilty of that thing. Jesus is guilty of nothing. The sinless one, subjected to a farcical trial by the Jews. He's now found innocent by the Romans, yet he's still being subjected to mockery and chastisement. Why did Pilate conclude like this? Releasing him follows your innocence, or releasing him, that makes sense. But the chastisement beforehand doesn't make sense. Well, I believe this is Pilate's way of having his cake and eating it too, right? He doesn't see Jesus worthy of death, yet the Jews want him dead. So he proposes severely punishing Jesus, yet setting him free. But as with all moral compromises, it fails on both counts, right? He fails... In both directions. He does not please both parties. He pleases none. He fails both directions. Jesus, who is innocent, should not be treated as an evildoer, so the punishment is an injustice. And the Jews aren't satisfied anyway. If anything, this offered compromise betrays the fact that Pilate is not standing for truth, and so it's just a matter of time and pressure before we get him to give us what we really want. Right? Pilate already betrayed the fact that I'm going to punish an in this man. Okay, you'll punish him that way. How much more pressure do we have to exert to get you to kill him? Right? Once you make the moral compromise here, the rest is just a negotiation. If a woman will give sexual favors to a man for a million dollars, we've already established that she's willing to be bought. Everything else is just a negotiation. You see, once there's a moral compromise that happens... It only is a matter of time before you are very far from where you began. It's foolishness to bargain with bloodthirsty men. There can be no concessions. Bribing the unrighteous is an effort in futility. The question here before Pilate should be, am I going to stand for what is holy and right and true? The question for us is the same. Will we stand for what is holy and right and true? Will we be uncompromisingly courageous with non-negotiable biblical principles? If not, everything else is just a matter of circumstances and a matter of price negotiation. Does Pilate really think he's going to reason with the mob? There's a reason why leadership in a country like ours doesn't negotiate with with terrorists, right? All you do is you tell terrorists, go ahead and do it some more because you'll get more stuff from us. If we negotiate with one terrorist, then how many more will rise up asking for stuff to get their way? That's why the the policy is don't negotiate with them. Or it ought to be. Don't negotiate with them. This is what happens with Pilate. He engages in a negotiation regarding an innocent man. He's already proven the fact that he's willing to give up his innocence in order to preserve something else. So Pilate now tries one last-ditch effort. He had a custom whereby he would release a prisoner to the Jews at, at the feast. And so it being that very day, Pilate asks, Who shall I release to you today? Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah, or Barabbas. this is yet another compromise for consider step, take a step back from this what's the purpose of this little custom to release a guilty person to put Jesus into the camp with Barabbas is to again admit what you just said you didn't admit. You just said he was innocent, but now you're putting him in the camp with the guilty Jesus is not guilty. So this custom should make no application to him. It was to free graciously someone who had been convicted of a heinous crime. Freeing someone from death row. But Jesus isn't guilty. So this shouldn't play into this at all. Yet Pilate, in some backhanded way, is putting Jesus into this category of the guilty by asking if the Jews would release him under this custom. It's as if Pilate's saying, Okay, you still think he's guilty, even though I don't see anything of guilt in him. Will you at least show... This man who's done nothing deserving of death, some sort of kindness, some sort of mercy, if I put it into this category, you mean, what, and what if I make the choices exceedingly obvious? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the choice that is so obvious. I'm not gonna have two doors and pick A or B. I'm gonna show you what's behind both doors. We got Jesus and we got Barabbas. Which of those two do you want? I'll give you one of them. I'm gonna set one of these guys free. It's possible that Pilate had many other prisoners that he could have put up for options for freeing. We know there were two men crucified with Jesus, one on either side of Jesus. Why is the offer between Jesus and Barabbas? Why those two? Why does Pilate boil it down to these two guys? The Gospels tell us that Barabbas was well known for his involvement in actual insurrection and rebellion. He even murdered someone in the process. Pilate puts up next to Jesus... A notoriously wicked man. It's on purpose. It's to be a foil to Jesus. Surely, given these two options, you'll free Jesus. I mean, here's the guy who's really, he's been found to be a terrorist. Which one will you pick? The terrorist or Jesus? It's like putting Osama bin Laden, you know, (laughs) next to Jesus. Which one will you pick? I know you don't like this guy, but this guy is really rough. Pilate puts these two up for them. He asks the crowd. I think this is interesting too. He had called not only the Jewish leaders, but the crowd in, I think this is because he knew that the Jews, Jewish leadership were handing Jesus over because of envy. Again, Mark 15, eight through 10 talks about this. The crowds were overwhelmingly supportive of Jesus, right? I mean, just a week before this, the triumphal entry, everybody's saying Hosanna. I mean, the crowds liked Jesus, right? So what's, Let's stack the deck. Let's get the crowd in here. Let's put two people up. One who's, I can't see anything wrong with, and another guy who's obviously a, a sinful, wicked man. And then let's have the crowd decide. Let's let the people decide this thing. But Pilate underestimates the Jewish leadership's crowd control, at least of the crowd that was there assembled. The religious leaders stirred up the crowds, and they chose to free Barabbas and to kill Jesus. Here again is proof that the Jewish leaders were liars and hypocrites. What was the reason for which they put up Jesus for death? On the accusation that he was an insurrectionist. That he was a traitor to Rome. That he was trying to incite a rebellion. That he was trying to stop the Jewish people from paying taxes. All of these were false. But here is Barabbas, a known political rebel of Rome. One who would even murder to advance his cause. So they Choose him over Jesus, a man who had never done anything wrong. You see it? See the irony? They voluntarily free a man who is guilty of the very crimes they try to stick to Jesus. How far will the envy and jealousy go? How much morality will be abandoned in the pursuit of selfish desires? Here we see the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people violating every principle of righteousness exonerating a murderer while murdering the one who came to give life. So they cry out, take away this man, release to us Barabbas. Even the way they refer to Jesus, this. It, the man is, in, is, is implied, take away this. you hear it? The, the arrogance, the spite against Jesus is so dishonoring. Take away this. As if he's a piece of rubbish or trash. Take away this. Give us Barabbas. Pilate says, Why? What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And they begin crying out, Crucify! Crucify Him! Crucify! Crucify Him! We're going to talk more about this horrendous form of death later on, but suffice it to say, it's a particularly horrendous form of execution. Now, while Pilate was awaiting their answer to free either Jesus or Barabbas, one other little snippet comes into the story, and we read about this in Matthew's account. Pilate's own wife is concerned about this Jesus. She sends Pilate a note saying, I have been wrecked, wrecked havoc with a, my, my mind is just going crazy because I've had this dream about this this righteous man. I've suffered much because of him. have nothing to do with him. Stay away from him, Pilate. It wasn't uncommon for people of that day to be particularly superstitious and give, to, give much power to the power of dreams and messages of dreams. So certainly this is one more thing that Pilate's considering as the people are debating about Barabbas or Jesus. So when they tell him, we want Barabbas freed and Jesus put to death, again here, a third time in rapid succession, Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? Do you see the exasperation here? It's like, Pilate's saying, I don't find anything in him. Why are you so intent on him dying? What has he done? Nothing deserving of death have I found in him. Then again, he offers this again. So therefore, let me just beat him up and release him. Let me give him a licking and then send him on his way. Again, Pilate's attempting to avoid killing Jesus. Let's just give him a whipping. Let's teach him a lesson. Let's let him go. He certainly hasn't done anything worthy of death, deserving of death. But the people press with loud voices. No effort is spent on trying to articulate an answer to that question. He's been asking over and over again. What has he done worthy of death? What has he done deserving of death? What has he done deserving of death? Instead, it's just fill the airwaves with crucify, crucify him, crucify, crucify him. But what has he done wrong? Pilate says, crucify, crucify him. Jesus remains quiet. In the midst of the wild accusations, no evidence was presented, but the quiet was just filled with the insistent, venomous demands for Jesus' death. And we're told that they yelled all the more. It was only a matter of time before their voices would prevail. The mob would win. And they would win their case without proof and without evidence. Pilate would give in. And he would set free a murderous rebel while crucifying a life-giving Savior. Peter would preach in Acts 3, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we have made Him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the One whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when He decided To release Him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. But you know, come to think of it, this great injustice, this unthinkable travesty, this horrible piece of news is also precisely why we have good news to share today. For at the heart of the gospel, the good news is this steady, unwavering message that Jesus died so that rebels may live. Jesus died so that rebels may live. Krumacher said it this way, Barabbas and Jesus change places. The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace, and mortal agony are transferred to the righteous Jesus, while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the immaculate Nazarene become the lot of the murderer. Both mutually inherit each other's situation and what they possess. The delinquent's guilt and cross become the lot of the just one, and all the civil rights and immunities of the latter are the property of the delinquent. Well, I am by no means arguing here that Barabbas came to saving faith in Christ. He is nonetheless an illustration for all of us, for all of us in some sense are Barabbas. I say said it again, all of us in some sense are Barabbas. Maybe not sinning precisely in the way that Barabbas did, but we're all partakers in sin nonetheless, and therefore guilty and deserving of death. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, came and died in the place of, of guilty sinners. Just as Jesus took Barabbas' physical place on the cross, He took the place of every sinner who believes in Him. For the only one deserving of death is not only Barabbas, not only Judas, not only Pilate, not only Herod, not only the Jewish leaders and populace, but all of Adam's seed is deserving of death. It's not the one deserving death. It's all of us deserve death. We're all guilty. And the wages of sin is death. In fact, the only one not deserving of death is the one who came to die that we might live. You see, Jesus was willing not only to eat with sinners, for which he was criticized, touch sinners, converse with sinners, heal sinners, but Jesus was willing to die for sinners. Jesus came not merely to identify with us in our weaknesses, which he does, but to take our place, to suffer in our stead, to be condemned, condemned for our sins, and to rise again for our justification. We can go free because Jesus died in our place. The innocent man is condemned so the guilty might be pardoned. Jesus submitted himself to suffering and torment. So that those who really deserve that treatment might be rescued from it. Jesus was crucified so that those on spiritual death row might be granted amnesty. Jesus bore a burden that was not His own, so that those who once carried that burden might be His own. He paid the debt that we owed. He gave us a righteousness we don't deserve. He's the Lamb of God whose blood covers us, removing sin's curse and death's sting. In the words of an early church letter, by what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange! O unsearchable operation! O benefit surpassing all expectation! That the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one. And that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Jesus voluntarily died. The only one who did not deserve to die that He would rescue men who did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the tremendous gift of Jesus. To consider this whole account and to be astonished by the lack of justice going on here in these legal proceedings, if we could even call them that. And meanwhile, to then take a step back and realize that in your marvelous big plan, that it was precisely justice that you were seeking to be had. For the only way by which you could extend mercy and grace to sinners and bring them to yourself was for their sin to be punished. For there to be a substitute that would stand in the place of them one who would go to the cross and bear the penalty of their sin such that you might be just and the justifier, that you might uphold your righteousness while simultaneously granting life and forgiveness and mercy to vile rebels. As we consider Barabbas, we think about his situation, may we see ourselves as Barabbas. And Jesus, thank You that You are willing to die in the place of murderers. Die in the place of liars. Die in the place of adulterers. Lord, thank You for Your marvelous grace and mercy. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.